Well, let's go ahead and pray as we get started. Father, thank you for this morning. Um, We thank you for the gospel. Um, Lord, it has made us a people. Uh, It has made us bound um, to you, Lord Christ, and bound to each other. Lord, we thank you for that. Um, We confess many truths. That's what we're talking about as we talk about confessions of faith, is the the truths that you have revealed to us from the scriptures and that we confess um, as true um, before men. And Lord, we thank you for the opportunities you've already given us um, in the past, this last week, um, and uh, Lord, we pray for more. We pray for uh, the coworker um, for James and Brenda that uh, they've been diligently sharing with and just ongoing spiritual conversations. Pray that that truth would sink in and pray that you would grant repentance. Um, Lord, we just pray for grace to know our neighbors, uh, to spend time with them, to have them over for dinner, to develop relationships, and then to speak of you um, because you are the center of our lives. We love you. Uh, we thank you. Uh, We pray for this morning as we continue to talk about and think about confessions of faith, even as we look at our own and look at revising our own, that you would give us wisdom, uh, that we would not lean on our own understanding, but that you would teach us. Lord, we thank you for this day. In Christ's name, amen. All right. So uh, just a little recap. Um, uh, Last Sunday, we really talked about the biblical warrant uh, for confessions of faith. In other words, um, a confession of faith is a document produced by man. It is. Uh, it is something that is produced by man. Um, so if we're going to do that, and with a confession of faith, say that these are summaries of biblical truth. These are things we must believe in order to um, either be, uh, you know, be saved or, in, in, even in a general sense, to grow in Christian maturity. Um, then we have to have biblical warrant for that, and we talked about that, uh, even starting in the Old Testament, but then picking passages from the New, uh, you can kind of see some uh, creed, some confession-like things in, say, 1 Timothy, even in Philippians 2. Uh, We talked about how the churches um, are, are, and we'll talk more about this today, but the churches are to guard doctrine, they're to guard the tradition that's been handed on to them. Uh, We talked about leaders who are supposed to uh, guard the faith, and so on and so forth. Uh, we kind of talked about this idea, well, well, can't we just say we believe the Bible? Well, the problem is if you do that, I mean, we sola scriptura, we believe in the final authority of the scriptures. We believe that. But um, if you kind of just do that blanket statement of, well, we just believe the Bible. Whatever the Bible says, we believe it. Well, that's true in one sense, but in another sense, um, you believe certain things uh, about the Bible, and yet if they're not written down, they're not subject to public scrutiny. Uh, so I could just say something, or we could just say something, and say, well, that's just biblical, right? But then it's like, well, where are you getting that from? And so it, you, everyone implicitly has a creed, and the idea of having it written down is so people can examine it. Uh, and then the other question we kind of ended with, um, aren't we vesting authority into human words and putting them above Scripture? And we said this, not if they're used correctly as summaries of biblical teaching, and we use this idea of the normed norms, right? The Bible is the ultimate norm. It's like the foot in Washington, D.C. That's the foot. Um, But then you um, have yardsticks that you buy at um, Tumalum or wherever, and uh, they're supposed to be norms, but they're normed norms. They're ultimately, you could trace them back to that foot in Washington, D.C. That's what confessions are. They're normed norms. Uh, They're not the ultimate foot. Uh, but they are a representation of the ultimate foot. That's kind of the idea, uh, if that makes sense. So that's where we were last week. 
uh, where we kind of ended and where we want to transition to today is um, to be useful. Here's the idea. To be useful, confessions of faith must be enforceable. To be useful, confessions of faith must be enforceable. Um, you can think about it uh, like this. Uh, I think I mentioned this idea. Um, I, taught, uh, I taught math for a number of years, and uh, the department would come up with all these great standards. Like, these are awesome standards. Like, we're going to teach this way, and we're going to do this, and people are going to learn math, and it's going to be wonderful and great. Except that there was no teeth behind it because you really couldn't enforce those standards, right? Um, and so when we talk about confessions of faith, we're talking about these as summaries of truth, but we're also going uh, a little bit more than that. We're saying that uh, some of these confessions are necessary to confess for salvation, namely the gospel. Um, and so we need to talk about, well, okay, how do we enforce these things? Uh, and here's the main idea, and this will set us up, or, or here's the idea we want to talk about, or the two ideas that we want to talk about. And that will actually lead us up to explaining why we want to go to two confessions of faith instead of one. And so here's the idea we're talking about today is that the authority for enforcement of creeds and confessions is vested in the local church at two levels, at two levels. One, the members, and two, the elders. Uh, that's kind of what we want to talk about is the authority for enforcement of confessions and where is that authority vested? Well, it's actually vested in two places. Uh, one, the members, and two, the elders. So let's start with the members, the members' authority. Uh, this will harken back to ideas that we did in January as far as uh, the authority that the local church has. So turn to Matthew. Matthew uh, 16 is where we start with, um, and I'm just going to, these ideas will be totally familiar uh, from, from January, but I just want to rehearse them, and now we're looking at them from a kind of a slightly different angle, okay? Uh, so same basic principles, but just a slightly different angle. So Matthew 16, let's start there. The key, one of the key passages talking about the church, and this would be the church universal, but we'll, we'll, dr we'll drive it back. There's a connection with the church local, obviously, but uh, Matthew 16, 13. Uh, and I'll go ahead and just start us off this morning by reading this. So Matthew 16, 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, way, 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 way up north um, in Israel, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Which is kind of similar to what we just saw in Matthew 11 last week, isn't it? That idea of revealing, the Father revealing. And I tell you, you are Peter, you're a stone, that's what Peter means. And on this rock, Petra, uh, Petros is Peter, Petra is this kind of massive bedrock. So Peter's a stone, but you've got this massive bedrock. And on this massive bedrock, I will build my church and the gates of hell, or Hades, shall not prevail against it. I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be, um, be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now what you see here, in term, where's the confession in this? What's the confession-ish sort of stuff that's going on here? Yeah, you are the Christ, right? Uh, essentially... Uh, so Peter's confessing doctrinal content, but also in terms of allegiance. 
And then because of that, he's blessed in a particular way. He becomes part of the foundation stone of the new temple, the new assembly uh, that God is building, uh, that Christ is building. It's his assembly. Uh, We talked about that's what church means. It just means assembly. And it's hearkening back to the idea of the Old Testament assembly. It's not that the church is replacing that at all. It's just saying that Jesus is uh, building. The, the, the Davidic king was to be the ultimate temple builder, and he's using that kind of language to say, I'm building my, my temple as the Davidic king, and it's going to be made up of people. Who's it going to be made up of? It's going to be made up of people like Peter and those who confess the same thing, right? That Jesus is the Christ. Uh, among other, And that implies a whole bunch of different things. So we kind of see here that Jesus is building his, now this is the idea of the whole universal church, And he's putting individual stones on his temple, but each of those individual stones is going to confess the truth. And then he talks to to Peter this idea of the keys of the kingdom. And we talked about that back in January. And basically, the idea is uh, they're Jesus' keys. You see Jesus wielding the keys in, uh, say, the Sermon on the Mount, where he's saying, here's what's true, and it's binding on you. Here's what's true, and it's binding on you. If you disobey this, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. So that, that's the idea of binding. He's using the keys to bind and say, you need to believe and obey this in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. You see that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Conversely, the idea of loosing is saying, this is not binding on you. This is not binding on you. Uh, and so it's just the reverse use of those keys. That's the idea of binding and loosing. It's, a, it's the key, power of the keys of the kingdom is the same as the power to bind and loose. Uh, It's entrusted here to an apostle. So you think about the apostles as the foundation stones of the universal church. They're setting in order the New Testament, essentially, if you want to think about it in those terms, and saying, here's what's binding on all of the Christian communities for all the local churches for all time. Um, That you must believe these things. You must believe what's written in the New Testament in order to be saved. These are the way you behave. This is the, what you must believe. It's both belief and practice. That's at the apostolic level. Uh, next, how does that relate to the local church? Well, we're going to Matthew 18, and you'll remember this from January, but any questions on Matthew 16 before we jump there and how that relates to confessions of faith? Yeah, uh, Eden. Yeah. No, yeah, it's, a, it's hard, and people struggle. It, it's a hard statement. Um, my, because I think it is directly tied to the Sermon on the Mount, because you hear the language of the kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount, say in Matthew 5. Uh, he uses the language of loosing. Uh, here, we can go ahead and turn there just briefly. So Matthew 5. So anytime you've got like clusters of similar language, in the scriptures, especially within the same book, chances are there's a really there's an intentional link between the two, right? It's like a it's like a portal taking you over to another um, passage of scripture. Um, so a couple places you would see this. So what is what is just by way of review as a whole? What is the Sermon on the Mount all about? Yeah, how to. What does kingdom righteousness look like? Your disciple, it's directed to disciples, those who've already uh, confessed, they've already repented, they've entrusted themselves to Christ. Uh, how do you live? Um, and who is Jesus? Remember, he, he talks, he, he gets into 
Well, let's just see. In 5.17, he kind of gets into the main body of the sermon, and he says this. Do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. That's the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes. Now, that word relaxes there, it's the word loosed. It's the word loosed. Whoever looses one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So basically Jesus is saying here, one, uh, if we look at that last statement, uh, if you're not living kingdom righteousness, because the reality is if you come to me, uh, I'm going to change you not only in terms of position of righteousness, but also transformation of life in terms of righteousness. If you're not living by kingdom righteousness, you're not entering the kingdom of heaven. Because he's implicitly saying here, the Pharisees and scribes aren't entering the kingdom of heaven. Um, and then what does he go on to do right after that in, in Matthew 5? He goes on to compare and contrast the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees versus his teaching. And what is he doing? He's essentially saying, here's what you hear it said, and they're saying this is binding on you to obey this way, but I'm saying to you, here's the right way to think about this. Here's what's binding on you. Or that's not binding on you, it's loosed on you, it's relaxed to you. You know, here's what the Pharisees and scribes are saying, uh, but they're not right. That's loose to you, but here's what is binding to, on you. Uh, Carol gave me a good language for this a while back. Uh, it's kind of like we talk about a contract is binding on someone. That's the idea here. It's the idea of both confession and practice. Uh, and you see that already in Matthew 5, and you also see it in the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is talking about the two ways and the two gates. He's like, here's the people that are going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and confession is necessary. He talks about those who are going to say, Lord, Lord, but confession isn't enough. It also has to be practice, right? Because Jesus not only saves you positionally, he saves you and transforms you, which means you've got to have a life that's mash, matching your confession. Uh, and so you see Jesus wielding the keys, binding and loosing in the Sermon on the Mount. And then he's going on in Matthew 16 and saying, all right, now you, Peter and apostles, you have the keys to bind and loose for the church because an apostle is an emissary. They're a, they're a power of attorney for Christ. And so they get to say, all right, church, universal church, uh, here's the apostolic doctrine. Here's the, the foundation of teaching, really our New Testament. Um, and this is what you must believe and live by if you're a Christian. Um, and so they're exercising the authority that Jesus has then passed on to them. So does that, um, oh, uh, um, yeah. Acts 15, yeah. Yeah. Exactly, that's a good example. So Acts 15 is a, effectively a church council, uh, and it's the church universal saying, all right, here's what's binding on the Gentiles, here's what's not binding on the Gentiles, here's what's loosed on the Gentiles. Um, this teaching is binding on you, this is not binding. So not binding equals loosed, if that makes sense. So. Well, yeah, on the precepts of Scripture and their time with Jesus, right? So, they're, uh, so former revelation, 
but also as an apostle, you also have a revelatory gift, right? Uh, they're also prophets in their own right, if you want to think about it in those terms. So the, the apostles and those connected with them in terms of just prophets. So you got po- apostle, which is a higher level than a prophet, but apostles are prophets, so they can give revelation. Um, and so uh, basically that's what Jesus says in John. He says, I'm going to go away. You can't bear all the things that I need to tell you, but I'm going to tell them to you later through the Spirit. And so that's how we get our New Testament as revelation, new revelation, in addition to the Old Testament scriptures, uh, to say these things are binding on you, church. So that's how we would view that. It's in every revelation. I mean, revelation is in accord with itself, right? So it's always in accord and matching what uh, the Old Testament scripture says. So, uh, yes, Tony. Yes. Yes. So when you introduce that factor into uh-huh. it, that completely changes my perception of binding and loosing. Binding and loosing revolves around the acceptance through faith of God and His Son, and now it adds a whole new dimension to what really happens. Why Christ can have His own interpretation of the law as opposed to that Pharisee. Uh-huh. Well, none of this is, remember, uh, even if you think back to, I'm, the claim is is that Matthew 16 with the binding and loosing language is explicitly linked with vocabulary and with concepts with Matthew 5 through 7. But Matthew 5 through 7 is directed to disciples, to those who have repented and entrusted themselves to Christ. So faith in all of this, this isn't just, all right, here's, this, here's, the, here's the standards and in fact, we're going to talk about that in Matthew 12 today, a similar idea. But it's not just here's the standards, but it's also you are connected with Christ. You have entrusted yourself to Christ. That's what it means to confess Christ and to confess a doctrine. It doesn't just mean, all right, I agree mentally with this statement. It means that uh, I am entrusting myself to Christ. And because of that, because of that, um, I am confessing these truths. So... Uh, that's what we're talking about. And, and that's, that's what we always want to emphasize is these things we're talking about in terms of doctrine, about standards. Christ has standards. The apostles have standards. But you could always be someone who ticks off the list and says, yep, believe that, believe that mentally. Men- there's a difference between mental assent and biblical faith. You could mentally assent, yep, that's true, that's true, that's true, that's true. 
But it doesn't matter unless you are, it, it, it's flowing from a relationship by grace through faith in, um, in Christ. So none of what we are saying is, is doing that. And even, G, uh, even Peter, right, he's confessing a doctrinal statement, but he's also, like I said, it's a confession of entrustment. Like Tony's saying, right, you're entrusting yourself to this Christ whom I'm confessing. Um, that's, that's the idea we're talking about. So, Okay, uh, any other questions? All right. Oh, yeah, uh, Melanie. Uh, we are in Matthew 16, but we're just going to go to Matthew 18. So we were just kind of going to Matthew 16 to talk about um, the authority given to the church, uh, universal, particularly the apostles. Uh, but then we're talking in Matthew 18, where it's like, okay, that's the universal church, but how does this convey to the, uh, the local church? And we go to Matthew 18. Um, someone read uh, Matthew 18, 15 through 20. All right, so the you in Matthew 16 was singular because it was first and foremost referring to Peter. The you in this case is plural because it's talking about the local church. Um, and so here you see the authority of the keys given to the local church. The authority to do what? Carol? Discipline. Let's unpack that a little bit. What's church discipline all about? It's not just spanking people, although that's kind of part of it, but what's, what's church discipline all about? What's it designed to do? Okay, holding people to accountability of truth, and not only truth in terms of here's the propositions, but in terms of what? Practice, right? So both truth and practice. Uh, what's the goal of church discipline always? Bringing them to repentance, meaning... Okay, you're believing the truth, you're practicing that truth. We as a church affirm that you are a brother. You're a practicing disciple. That's what bringing them to repentance means, right? You're affirming that, yeah, okay, you were going astray, but now you're repented, and we affirm and reaffirm that you are a brother in Christ by your faith and your practice, okay? Um, and so that's really what church discipline is. It's It's... It's the, um, it's the, that's, that's the power of the keys. So the power of the keys is saying, yeah, for, um, we the church see you as an individual, and we see, yeah, you're walking in accord with the gospel. You've entrusted yourself to Christ. 
uh, your profession is right, your truth is right, but also your practice. The, you're living in accord with that truth, and we affirm you. Or, if they're going astray, uh, you're going astray, you're not walking accord with the truth, you're not walking in accord with practice. These things are binding on you to believe and to practice, and you're not walking in the way you ought. We're calling you to repentance. And if they're repentance, yeah, we reaffirm that you're a disciple. If they do keep going astray, then we remove our affirmation that they are a disciple. That is the authority given to the local church. So it's not the same level as the apostolic. Like, they get to decide for the whole universal church. A local church doesn't. It's governing internal affairs, so to speak. Um, but it is an authority of the keys um, to bind and to loose. Okay, let's make sure we understand that. And understand that authority before we go farther. Because this, you can kind of see how this is connecting with the idea of confessions of faith. Okay? Any questions? Yeah, David. Can you, can you speak up? I wish we had a floating mic. <laughs> Sure. Yeah, yeah, none of this is, yeah, well, never are the keys enumerated, like, here's one, here's two, here's three, but we would agree, right? Like, uh, we are speak. What is, what is preaching? Preaching is taking God's word and what he says in the scriptures and saying, all right, here's what we must believe and what we must practice, and here's how it applies, right? Um, basically, everything I do each week when I preach is, Explain the text, apply the text. Explain the text, apply the text, right? Well, when we talk about application, essentially I'm making a claim that these things, here's the text and here's what the text means, here's how it applies to your life, here's how it's binding on you. And so, in particular ways, I can't go through every single way that the text is binding on you, but here I'm, I'm illustrating here's some applications that are binding on our lives as a Christian, right? And it would, it would feed into all of this that, okay, if here's what the truth says, and you're not living that way, then, I, then the church, at an ultimate sense, would say, we are removing our affirmation of discipleship, or the whole point of discipline is to bring repentance, so if that person comes back around and believes and acts in accordance with biblical truth, we would say, yes, we affirm you, welcome back, brother or sister, thank you for coming back and not going astray, right? And so what we see in Matthew 18 is the church has an authority on earth to speak for Jesus. Uh, it includes preaching. It includes actually several things. Binding and loosing is pretty broad, actually, in terms of its applications. But essentially the core idea of it is that the church has a, has a local church has a way of saying an authority from Jesus to speak on behalf of heaven in accord with the scriptures. Here's what the scriptures are saying. Here's what the apostles said. Here's what the prophets said in the Old Testament. Here's how it applies to your life. This is binding on you as an individual. It's a corporate entity, an institution, saying this is binding on you as an individual Christian. Okay? More questions or comments on that. This is super important for us to understand. Yeah, Susan. Yes. Absolutely. 
Yes. Yeah. Right. It's true. It's absolutely true. Sort of. Um, yes and no. He gives authority, but then he gives ways of enforcing it, right? Let's think about another sphere of authority. Let's think about the state, right? God gives the power and authority to the state as a stewardship to punish evil and to promote good. And he also gives us a means of enforcement through the sword, ultimately through capital. The ultimate end of the sword is capital punishment, right? Um, but to different people and to people in different roles, he gives different kinds of authority. So to the church, the way of enforcement is church discipline. It is the way of saying we as a church, not just one or two people, although it's based on the the evidence of two or three witnesses, it's saying the whole church is removing the affirmation that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, that's not the same as saying that person's definitely not saved, but what it is saying is that we can't see it. We can't see it anymore. And what is that supposed to do? It's supposed to shake that person by the shoulders and say, wake up. We can't affirm you anymore. Wake up. And so the, level, the, the, the means of enforcement in terms of a local church is church discipline, right? Um, now, in an ultimate, ultimate sense, what, what is the church doing when it says, we can't affirm you? It's saying, you better wake up because by what we can see, you're going to go to the judgment seat and it doesn't look like you're going to be saved. We don't know that for sure. Only God knows that for sure. But it's what we're saying as a corporate entity that uh, uh, you, you got to wake up because you should be afraid on judgment, uh, judgment day. We don't know that for sure. God's the ultimate judge, but it's a means of grace that God is using to try to wake them up um, to, to do that. I saw a couple other hands. So, Brenda. Yes. Um, because essentially in becoming a member, we don't think of membership primarily in terms of someone siding on the dotted line. We think of a member as someone who's covenanting with us, saying, I want, I'm in, I'm in with you guys. Recognize me as a believer, right? Affirm me as a believer. And then from the flip side, the church is saying, yes, we affirm you as a believer and we're going to hold you accountable, up to and including discipline. Uh, and if someone hasn't covenanted with me to do that, I can't hold them accountable. I can politely ask them to leave. I can get a restraining order if they're being... You know, like they're just in a tender or something like that. But uh, it's like, all right, well, you never covenanted with us, and I don't, I don't have the same level of responsibility for you as I do with a member, uh, because they covenanted with me. Um, they covenanted with not me, with us, with us as a local church. Um, and that's what we're talking about. That's what we mean by membership. But you're right, Susan. In our culture, our culture has. If you think back to, let's say that, think back to the time of the Reformation. 
you don't have an option. There is one church in your town, maybe a couple, but depending on the size of the town, right? But that's the church, and you don't have the choice of going to uh, the church down the road. We live in a culture that glorifies and uh, choice. We are the culture of choice, or another way that Carl Truman, which by the way, this is a weird aside, I have a stack of his books. This is like the abridged version of The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. If you promise to read it within three months, I will give you a copy. But he talks about this idea of expressive individualism where, yes, uh, we as a culture glorify choice. Even among the church, we shouldn't delude ourselves into thinking that we haven't been influenced by that thinking. We don't like to submit to external authority structures. Uh, we want to choose based on our own preferences, including in the church. Well, I, don't, I like this preaching, I don't like this preaching. I like this worship, I don't like this worship. And on down the line. I, this place has something for my kids, this place doesn't. It's just a culture of expressive individualism. It's the idol of our age. And so what we are doing, or trying to, how do we recapture what the Bible is talking about? Well, we try to faithfully implement it as a local church, right? And if we're doing that, we are countercultural in a good sense. Um, and we are saying, no, this is the enmity of Jesus. He gets to set the rules here. I don't. Um, and we want to live in accord with that. Um, and so we are in that kind of culture. So how do we, how do we, we well, can't control if someone's going to go down the road. Okay. Uh, we don't like that, but, um, but here we're, we're going to be faithful to King Jesus and what he's telling us to do, and we're going to be the community he wants us to be. That's what we're striving for in all of this. So, yeah, Ken. So does this relate directly to our issues about Yeah, I mean, it's all interrelated. But that's not primarily what we're talking about right now. Uh, this is more general. Um, it's related, but, but yeah, I, I don't want to go there right now. We'll talk about it eventually when we walk through the doctrinal statements. But it is related. Yes, it is related. So, um, okay. Any other questions? Because this is really, really important to get. I think I'll add another perspective to that. Probably most of the conversations I've had with people who will either take either term a spiritual form, quote unquote, and you try to talk to them, and yes, I believe in God, and yes, Yeah, you know, right. You're not, getting, you're not getting in with a bunch right. of people and creating a government. 
right, right. You're under this kingdom. Yes. And so I try yes. to emphasize that side, so hopefully the other thing will come along and make more sense. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Right, and, and we shouldn't deny, we should never deny that there's a reason people have a suspect of authority, institutional authority, right? Because you can walk through history, uh, uh, the church, uh, we're not going to, ex- we own that, right? Um, that you can look at the church throughout history and it's abused its authority, right? Uh, or you can look at the state and it's certainly abused its authority. And so people will become suspicious because authority has been used wrongly. And what we're trying to say is, yeah, yeah, that's true. But that doesn't mean you can give up on the structure of authority that Jesus has given. What you have to do is use it rightly and show that when you use it rightly, uh, it's beautiful. Um, there's a quote, uh, I've, I think it's in 1 Samuel, where uh, David's talking. He's talking about when a godly ruler rules over people, right? It's like rain and sunshine coming down on them. It's like authority well used is meant to bless it's meant to be good. But people are suspicious because they've seen a lot of abuse of authority. And they say, well, I'm just going to throw out the whole structure because I've seen too much abuse. Well, we don't want to deny that there's been abuse. Uh, but we do want to affirm, no, the structure is good. Let's work harder at living in accord with that. And to Tony's point, right, it's not just about the structure. It's about the person who is bringing us together, Jesus Christ. He is the king. He is the ruler. He is setting the structures. He's setting the, the thing. So it's not, um, it's not like, uh, okay, here's the structures. Great. We have these structures in places. No, no, Jesus is great. He is awesome. And he's a good ruler. And he gives us good structures to live under, including the local church. So, yeah, Matt. Yeah, it's, it's kind of ironic, because even with our culture, what's our culture? It's the, the triumph, again, as Carl Truman would put it, and I think he's just spot on, uh, it's the triumph of the individual. The individual is ruler, which means that not only do I recognize myself for who I am, but I need the whole culture, including the government, to accommodate and recognize who I am, rather than we are a community, and the community is going to shape you, Right? Uh, if you think about that in terms of schools, right? Schools used to be you go to them to be shaped by the school, to be shaped by math, um, uh, or writing, or whatever, you know. Um, uh, but now the schools have become a platform, a platform for the individual. So has the church, because now the church is no longer I'm being shaped by the church. Obviously, I'm painting in broad brushstrokes here, but now the church is no longer a communi- uh, an individual shaping community. It is a platform for the individual for their own preferences. And that is deadly, right? And that's why it's like, how do we make sure we don't fall into that? We have to go by the structures that Jesus himself, as king, and as a kingdom embassy, he has put us in place for us. So, yeah. Right. 
Oh, yeah. Right. They're incorrect, yeah. Yeah, yes. Yep, exactly. Um, which is the, what we mean by the scriptures are the norming norm. We keep coming back to them. We apply the hermeneutic of what did the original authors intend. You have to start there to make sure that we're getting it right. So um, just one final, let's kind of wrap up. I'm going to go through a couple other things. Just the other key text in this, 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5 is a very key text because essentially what Paul says, he's talking about church discipline, and he says essentially there's an inside and an outside to the local church, um, and he's talking about a specific individual that you need to uh, throw out. Uh, so the people in the local church are recognized, they're known, and then if they go astray, he calls them a so-called brother. They're still bearing the name of brother, but they're so-called because they're not, they're, not, uh, they're walking in an immoral lifestyle in that case, but... Uh, they get kicked out of the church, which he says, don't even eat with such a one, which certainly has implications for the Lord's Supper. Uh, that's part of church discipline. Um, so uh, there's an inside and outside to the local church, uh, which is why we say the local church is its membership. It's those people who have covenanted together. They're recognized uh, as being under, submitting to one another. I'm submitting myself, I, Chris Mullins, am submitting myself to Faith Bible Church and the members of Faith Bible Church for discipline, uh, for accountability, uh, for all of those things, right? That's what it means to be a member. Um, and so when we talk about binding and loosing, it would, of course, be things like you, you're walking in an immoral lifestyle that goes against what Jesus said. Uh, if you're not going to repent, we're going to kick you out of the church. We don't want to do that, but that's God's way of waking you up. Conversely, right, um, if you're in the boat, right, we're affirming your discipleship. Um, and uh, another piece to this is, you know, kind of what Rachel and what we've been talking about and what we're focused on is confessions, right? If you believe heresy, if you don't believe the right things about God or Jesus, uh, then you don't hold to the true gospel, and we are going to discipline you for that, again, for the purpose of uh, you need to believe the right things about God. You need to see who God is. You need to see who Christ is um, so that we can affirm you, which ultimately, Go ahead. Yeah, and it's the purity of the church. Church discipline is for two things. First and, well, I don't even know if we could prioritize it. It is for the restoration of the individual, and it is for the purity of the church. Um, that is what church discipline is for, is uh, because the church has a corporate dimension to display and to honor Christ, because Christ didn't just rec rescue individuals for himself, he rescued for himself a people, and that people needs to be pure distinct, definable, all of those things, okay? Um, so here's some key questions to end on, okay? Uh, if that's true, then when we talk about membership and we talk about uh, affirming someone's discipleship, they need to believe certain things. Now, let's be very careful here. How much do you have to believe to be a Christian? 
Okay, yeah, that Christ is Lord, which means certain things about who Christ is. He's God and man. What does it mean to be Lord? What's the nature of God, right? There's, so what's the nature of the God we're talking about? He's a triune God. Uh, we're talking about the incarnate. Implicit in that statement is a lot of theology, right? And so um, when we talk, there's, uh, there are essential truths you need to believe, right? Um, that Jesus is Lord, the nature of who God is, uh, those sorts of things. So already you can start to see why we would have a confession that would say, these are the things you must believe, right? What about practice? What does somebody have to live to be affirmed as a member? Now, let's be we have to be very careful with this, but, uh, to, to, well, let's, let me ask that question a little bit differently. What is some, how does someone have to live not to be a Christian, but to be affirmed as a Christian, Yes. Yeah, and we see that in the scriptures, right? If Christ saves you, he changes you. And sometimes that change is very slow. So sometimes you, it's, you have to be very, very uh, generous and cautious. It's like, uh, okay, are you living as a disciple? Well, your profession's good. Uh, maybe you're a baby Christian and you're just getting into it, right? And you're just putting off some, a few sins, right? Well, um, but do we see a desire? Do we see a spiritual hunger in that? Uh, and are you living according to Christ's commands? By, you know, um, the, what you can see, that's a growth process, uh, but even some of the foundational commands, right, uh, of what does it mean to be a disciple, are you living in accordance with that? Um, which is why something like baptism, right, that's, that's a boundary for membership because that's the first command Christ gives for a disciple. Um, here's another question to kind of think about. How much can members differ in doctrinal belief and yet still be members of the same church? Yeah, so, like, let, let's, let's throw out some cases. Can, um, I believe in complementarianism, which means I believe that God has given specific roles to men and women and that uh, a wife should submit to her husband, um, whereas an egalitarian would say, no, they're equal in all in every way as far as role. Uh, so we would differ, and yet they can hold the true gospel. Can I be a member with them? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely, because they're holding the same gospel. That's, that's assuming they're holding the same gospel, right? We can disagree. I'm not going to agree to that. I'm not going to teach that. I'm going to teach complementarianism. But um, I, um, I can still be, uh, be with that person and affirm their discipleship if they're believing and walking according to the true gospel. Now, I think at points their, their belief and practice is going to collide. <laughs> uh, I believe that. But nonetheless, uh, there's a generosity um, and a charity of spirit when we spend time with that. Let's talk about the continuation of the gifts. I am a cessationist. I do not believe in the continuation of the miraculous gifts. Can I be a fellow member with someone who does believe in the continuation of the gifts. Absolutely, if they're holding a true gospel. If they're a oneness Pentecostal, that's a problem because you don't believe the Trinity. But uh, I can, um, I can uh, have, be a member with someone who disagrees with me, and I can have a charitableness and a love for that person because we hold to the same gospel even though we differ on different things, right? You see how this is working? We want the boundary of membership to be pretty darn close to basically what it means to be a Christian. Uh, and you're like, well, why isn't it exactly equal? Because 
there are uh, big foundational commands like baptism. That's like, uh, Christ is pretty clear on that. That's the first obedience as a person. So that's, that's a boundary to membership. It is already as a church, and it has been. James, you had a question. Yeah, yeah. Like, he is going to be Yep. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I believe that. Well, let's flip the tables around. Um, the Presbyterians and the Pado Baptists on the opposite side would also exclude us from membership. Uh, there's, there's, there's examples of, of um, uh, there's a church that I think one of Steve's nephew. Oh, no, it's Lance, your son, right? Uh, not to bring... Uh, they were going to a faithful gospel-preaching church. It was uh, a Presbyterian church, and they wouldn't admit them to membership based on their views on believer's baptism. So... Well, it's just, again, we go back to Matthew 28. Jesus is very clear on um, make disciples by baptizing them. That's how the entry um, point to the church, and so we take that command seriously. That's the current, this has been the position of this church since its inception. So that's, that's, not, that's not new at all. So, um, Now here's one final question, and then we'll close. Should members be content with the basic level of doctrinal knowledge required to be a member? Yes. Yes. We are all commanded to grow. Hebrews 6, talking about Melchizedek, which is a hard doctrine by anyone's measure, right? And he's like chiding them, saying, you guys are still at the basics. You guys need to grow. Uh, you guys need to grow on, Right? So when we think about the doctrine for membership, that's a pretty wide uh, band uh, because it should be darn close to what it means to be a Christian, right, at a foundational level, but that doesn't mean what you stay there, right, uh, which is why we talk about what we're going to talk about next week uh, when we talk about eldership and the doctrinal statement for eldership, that's what you teach to, right? We want people to grow in doctrine, and so the level of teaching will be different than the level of membership. But we'll talk about that more next week. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. We thank you for um, our time together. We ask for help um, as we gather together to worship you and to, um, uh, to sing your word, to preach your word, to take uh, communion together, Lord God. Please prepare our hearts. Uh, please help us, and please, um, please grow us together. We ask for grace to hold uh, true doctrine and right doctrine and right practice. We pray that we would submit one another. To, we would submit each one of us would submit to the whole local church uh, for accountability, for understanding, uh, for affirming one another's discipleship, and um, we just ask for grace and for help to do so and to. Hold rightly to be charitable where we can be and to hold our convictions where we need to. Lord, we thank you for this time this morning. In Christ's name, amen.